warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. The very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Good morning, Scott here. It's one of those wonderful episodes where the three of us are together. So a very good morning to my two co-hosts, my two friends. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Tony. Good morning. Morning. I was going to read out the hello and welcome thing or thank you and hello thing that's written in um, Greek at the at the end of this film, but I can't pronounce it, so I'll leave it just as, as hello. What bit was that? Hello and welcome. At the very end, it says it's like a thank you. It's got it's got some some Greek words at the bottom. Yeah, and it translates as something like thank you and hello or or something other. I only know this because I read it somewhere. Obviously, it's not because I actually have any understanding of (laughs) Greek in any way, shape, or form. Because that would be ridiculous. I mean, I struggle enough with English without anything else. I mean, I eat the yogurts. Is that your your cultural uh, investment in Greece? Yeah, I'm sure they really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, for listeners so. that haven't seen what the title of this this week's podcast is and wondering why we're talking about Greece instead of British movies, it was Tony's choice. It was one of those ones that are not questionable as to whether it's a British movie, but it's one of those delightful movies that we describe as a British international production. Guys, am I right to say that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the more you you look into it, the more you think, well, it was actually a British production that they've shoe-owned some international stars into. Sounds about right, um, yeah. Yeah, that makes more sense. I'm glad we get letters from people (laughs) complaining. We will do. Well, they they can, they can complain, but we know that we are the ultimate arbiters of what is a British film and what isn't. Yeah, because it's got Anthony Quinn and Gregory Peck in it. But then we class Great Escape as a British movie and it's still got Steve McQueen and James Garner in it. You know, Bridge on the River Kwai had William Holden, but it's essentially a British movie. So, yeah, it's absolutely fine and correct to include this, guys, yeah? Absolutely. There's more Germans in it than there are Americans, to be fair. So There you go. Yeah. And most of the Germans were Greek, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. And Walter Gotel, who was General Gogol in the Bond films, yeah. who is the, the main German bad guy. I don't even think he was actually German. I'm not too sure. We'll have to have a look at this when we go through. It is The Guns of Navarone. It was your choice, Tony. It was my choice. Uh, because you watched it recently, I think you said, so you wanted to talk about it? Yeah, so... I was flicking through, as I do, seeing what was going on about, and I saw Guns of Navarone pop up. Mm. And I thought, oh, I'll give that a watch. I haven't watched that in a long, long time. And thoroughly enjoyed it. I sported the, I sported the ending. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Just don't worry, everyone. There's still two other people to get through yet. 
Um, <laughs> and I thought, well, do you know what? I'm going to throw it out there. And everyone jumped on board. I think they took pity on me. And no, no, no. here we are. So did you watch it again? Yes. Well, okay, so literally like a month apart or whatever, you've, you've watched it quite quickly in succession. Yeah, uh, and this morning as well. In fact, it's just finishing now on the telly. That is some commitment for a two hours, 40 minute movie. I was going to say, yeah, you know, it probably helped by the fact that I was a late turning up to the record. But um... <laughs> Well, if I knew you was going to be late, I could have got the new James Bond in, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> That's about the same length of time as well, actually. <laughs> yeah. too, too long, far too long. Okay, it's The Guns of Navarone, wartime classic, British classic, 1961. We'll be back after this. The greatest high adventure of our time. With a cast as exciting as the story it tells. Gregory Peck. David Niven. Anthony Quinn. Stanley Baker. Anthony Coyle. James Darren. Irene Pappas. Gia Scala. Alistair MacLean's best-selling novel, Live to the Hilt on the Islands of the Aegean Sea. This is Gregory Peck speaking, and I'd like to tell you something about the guns of Navarone because it's the most unusual film in which I've ever appeared. I play the role of Mallory, the man whose job it is to lead six expert cutthroats and saboteurs on a desperate and impossible mission. Watch out! What makes it even more desperate and impossible is that some of us hate each other even more than we do the enemy. That's a pretty good partner you've got there yourself. He's going to kill me when the war is over. You think that you've been getting away with it all this time, standing by. Well, son, your bystanding days are over. You're in it now, up to your neck. They told me that you're a genius with explosives. Start proving it. You got me in the mood to use this thing. And by God, if you don't think of something, I'll use it on you. The Guns of Navarone is crowded with action and excitement, but it is even more than great adventure. Over and above its tremendous thrill, this is a story of human beings, each with his intense personal fears, his deep personal conflicts, each with his moments of triumph and tenderness. This is a story of unrivaled courage Easter. and suspense. Quietly, gentlemen, unless you want a great many innocent people killed as well as yourselves. Everybody stay exactly where you are. The party's over. Somebody's stepped on the cake, which means that there is a traitor in this room. The Guns of Navarone, I promise you, is probably the most exciting film you will ever see. So that's the Guns of Navarone, released 
in June 1961, June the 22nd, if you want to be really exact on the date, directed by J. Lee Thompson, starring Gregory Peck, David Niven, Anthony Quinn, Stanley Baker, Anthony Quayle, James Darren, Irene Pappas, James Robertson Justice, Richard Harris. The, the cast is incredible for this, as you would expect from a blockbuster movie. The synopsis In 1943, a small commando team is sent to destroy huge German guns on the Greek island of Navarone in order to rescue Allied troops trapped on Kiros. Led by British Major Franklin Anthony Quayle, the team includes American Mallory Gregory Peck, Greek resistance fighter Stavros Anthony Quinn, and reluctant explosives expert, try saying that, Miller. Was he Greek as well? <laughs> no, he was, he was David Niven, the least I, Greek person in this whole cast. I thought he was reading this in Greek, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's Foreign funny. words we've never understood. It's early in the morning, and I'm trying to say the words reluctant explosives expert. It's just a little bit difficult. Anyway. Yeah, just imagine, got to... imagine how I do when I write my alliterative words. <laughs> Facing impossible odds, the men battle stormy seas and daunting cliffs. When Franklin is injured, Mallory takes command and personal enmities spill over. It's always been like a bank holiday Christmas classic, this one. We've all seen it a thousand times, haven't we? Well, I wouldn't say a thousand times, but yeah, a lot. <laughs> right, a few. I've told you a million times, do not exaggerate. <laughs> um, I think I must have seen it somewhere between five and ten times. So. Yeah, probably not that many for me. I know, Tony, you've watched it sort of three times in the last month. Yeah, yeah. First time was just to have a catch-up, and the other couple were just for this podcast. I thought I'd actually come prepared for a change. Good man. So you, you've seen this a fair few times before, though? Yeah. One of your favourites? Um, yeah, it's up there. Is, is this it's, the reason it's you... It's suspenseful, you... isn't it? Mm. Good word, isn't it? Because you are a big fan of the war movie. We know that. You know, the British stiff upper lip war movie is, is one of your turn to genres. What about this sort of war movie, Tony, where it's like the blockbuster, as we say, the international flavour, the long running time, you know, that sort of character development leading into the grand finale. Is that the sort of war movie that you gravitate towards? No, no, it is. It's a bit too long for me. It probably could have done with being 45 minutes shorter. I think there's lots of bits that don't actually need to be in there. You know, like when, when at the start of it, when the boat's about to crash into the rocks, or well, there's 15 minutes of the boat crashing into the rocks. <laughs> we don't need that. Um, and not 20 minutes of climbing up a cliff and being sitting there silence. Obviously, it all has the, the suspense, but yeah, just the overall running time is just a bit too much. A bit too um, much. Was it padded out, Stephen, do you think? I think they were trying to make it an epic in that sense, and the, they might not have had the rolling sand dunes or the the expanse of northern India. Mm. Um, so they tried to do that through the, the length of the film. And I think that, you know, it could have been edited down if they weren't you know, so intent upon making sure that they, they showed what they were trying to do. Not like it is actually a true story as such, so it didn't need all that detail put in. They could have skipped some bits or, or streamlined, I suppose. But I don't feel it was um, it was too long. But um, I understand people might feel it could have been shorter. Yeah, but I think that's the idea, as you said. You know, to get that epic feel to it. You know, they're trying to make something in the vein of. Bridge on the River Kwai or, you know, these these war movies that had appeared previously. The big cast, you know, international cast, uh, worldwide appeal. This certainly fits in that category, doesn't it? So you could see probably why it was two hours and 40 minutes. And for my mind, if you go into this movie expecting a two hour 40 running time, you're going to get those extended sequences. You're going to get that character development. Although we don't really get to know too much about the characters 
at the beginning, this sort of like progresses throughout the film. We don't know too much about David Niven's background until it becomes apparent later on in the movie or the animosity between Anthony Quinn and Gregory Peck because of what happened, which, which is great because you've got that extra time to develop all of these little side stories. From reading bits about it, it seems like there was changes made to the script and actual suggestions being made, particularly from Gregory Peck, about the sort of details of the character in the background and fleshing them out. So how much of that wasn't information that actually was decided upon when they started filming and they did the earlier scenes? I know they don't always, you know, record a filming sequence, but still you would imagine that some of the bits they came up with as, you know, later on in the film anyway, just as they were filming it. And certainly the animosity bits and the backstory between, it's kind of two couples in a way, background that does, I think, help you feel like it's there's humanity in this rather than it's just soldiers who are uniformed individuals but not actual people. So it does work in that sense, but whether it been filtered out in the way it was was the best way or whether there was a bit more that could have been said earlier on, I don't know really. So Tony, can you yeah. kick this off for us, mate? Just tell us what the basic sort of premise of the plot is. So it's um, a group of Allied soldiers that are gathered, um, I can only assume as an RAF base, after a failed mission to take out some German guns, heavy artillery based in a mountain. And the pilots have made it very clear, not so such a subtle way that they it can't be done by the air. It'll be a suicide mission. But these guns need to be removed because there's thousands of soldiers' lives on the line in the next few days, mm-hmm. as well as potentially six naval ships. So that was the importance of the mission. So a carefully hand-picked group of people from different backgrounds were put together to um, take these guns out. A commando unit, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that there was a lot of protests from the Air Force and the pilots saying that this whole thing cannot be done from the air, how dangerous it was. We can't go any further without mentioning Richard Harris. Yes. Now, at one point, he declares he's an Australian, or someone states that he's an Australian, and it took me a good minute or so to actually realise he was trying to do an Australian accent here. (laughs) Just throwing the word bloody in every other sentence. (laughs) That's what I wanted to say. Yes. (laughs) It is incredible, this speech that he gives. And it's, it's a cameo as well. He's only in it for that like minute or two, isn't he, at the beginning? He is. And, you know, at least he was attempting the accent, which, of course, <laughs> Sean Connery wouldn't have done. And as it happens, uh, Gregory Peck's character in the novel that this is based on, that character is actually Australian. And obviously, Gregory Peck doesn't even attempt Australian. So I don't know whether Richard Harris's um, attempt at Australian is better than Gregory Peck's not even bothering to try. It's absolutely right. Uh, Using bloody uh, in every sentence doesn't necessarily make you Australian. I have to mention at this point, I read some trivia this morning, that Gregory Peck is supposed to be fluent in German as well. And Greek. And Greek. But apparently his German, when he was reading the lines in German, weren't convincing to the German-speaking audience. They had to dub Gregory Peck's German speeches. Okay, so the guys are all gathered together at this RAF base, we think, Tony, isn't it? Yeah. And it's a fictional um, island as well, isn't it? Navarone doesn't actually exist in real life, does it? No, completely fictional, yeah. Yeah. This is partly based on some sort of truth to this, isn't there, Tony? Well, the guns weren't this big. It was There were some guns that were, you know, that historically they were, were taken out by commandos. 
It was part of the Dodecanese campaign. There we go, yep. Uh, the novel was inspired by the Battle of Leros during the Dodecanese campaign, but the guns on Leros were six inches, not the huge guns described in the book. There we go. The novel. Men are always saying it's more than six <laughs> inches. <isn't it? laughs> yeah, one of the other major changes was that the two resistance fighters, the Greek ladies, were actually blokes in, in the Alistair MacLean novel as well. They looked it, good, uh, though, didn't they? Oh, sex appeal. <laughs> What, you think it would have been more sexy if they had been blurps? Yeah, and they'd had their shirts ripped off. So talk us through once more, So after the original briefing and they decide that the commando unit's going to be the best way forward, we get this quite extended scene, as you say, on this fisherman's like trawler, this boat. Yeah, so they obviously they got this as a decoy boat to get to their or intended destination before it all goes a bit tits up. But I think, yeah, they're playing Greek fishermen, aren't they? They have a bit of a, an encounter with a German boat, patrol boat, which didn't end too well for the Germans. Yeah. And um, then they go and trash it, crash it into a load of rocks uh, during a storm. Lose a little bit of their kit, get most of it, and then they have to climb up this mountain or a rock face to um, start their assault. Now, I'm right in thinking that Mallory, Gregory Peck, is a mountaineering expert or has got some experience in mountaineering? Apparently he was the best. The best in the whole wide world? Best, but he hadn't done it for five years because of the war. Ah, right, okay. So Better than his namesake who died on Everest. He did indeed, didn't he? That's right, yeah. So was this part of the plan? You'll have to like remind me here, guys. That the, obviously, the, the boat has crashed, so this climbing up the mountain bit wouldn't have been part of the plan? Is this no, the bit I... you fell asleep through? Yes, I did. I did nod off. <laughs> <laughs> right at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think they, they trashed it a little bit too early. And they were meant to land somewhere else and it all went tits up and they were running out of time anyway. So um, they so were that... up against it and they just had to crack on with what they had. Obviously, they didn't have a boat anymore because it had been smashed up. Yeah. So they had to go to land. So and, they climb uh, up the cliff face. Yeah, in, I don't think in... they had much of a choice. Yeah, they climbed the cliff face in the same way that... Adam West as Batman climbed the side of a building um, <laughs> on a on a on a flat surface, doing it horizontally. I uh, thought that because they were looking down at Gregory Peck, and I thought he's crawling towards the camera on his belly. There, he's not actually climbing. I'm glad somebody else noticed that, and it wasn't just me. <laughs> just um, a, a painted surface on the floor, really. <laughs> and it's at this point that Anthony Quayle breaks his leg. Careless. Yes. Foolishly. Okay, and he's right. actually the leader of the mission, isn't he, originally? He's the guy that's leading, or is supposed to be leading this whole commando raid, yeah? Yeah, yes. So we get this wonderful scene where Quail is being strapped up and his legs being looked at, and it's like, oh my God, he can't go any further. You know, what are we going to do? And Mallory's going to take over. Gregory Peck's going to take over. And he leaves this cave that they're sheltered in because he realises he's going to be a burden to the mission. Yes, and decides that he's going to kill himself. Yes, finish himself off and uh, make it easy for the rest of them to carry on without him. But then Gregory Peck does something quite clever here, yeah? Yes, although it's not appreciated for its cleverness. It's seen as just being uh, usury, really, by David Edmonds' character, who is very close. They're friends, um, aren't they? That's right. The, yeah, yeah, going back historically, they've got a great friendship going back, and then so he's more inclined to think that it's the wrong thing that's been done, although he doesn't quite realise the extent of it until later on um, what's been done. So basically what he does, he lies, doesn't he, to Anthony Quayle to stop him from killing himself. He's saying that this whole mission 
is is a scam it's a diversion tactic isn't it and basically what's going to happen is that there's going to be a major assault by the navy on the coast instead yes and he's drip fed this information knowing that the, under torture the truth will come out as far as what they he regards the truth to be so why not give him a different truth to to give to the germans to allow them more room to maneuver yeah those pesky germans yeah so basically they prevent Anthony Quayle from killing himself and they take him along with them and it's at this point we meet the two resistance fighters played by Arini Pappas and Gia Scala. Now one of them, Anna, we find out, is this right? She was captured by the Germans and tortured or she tells them she was captured and tortured by the Germans? A school teacher who was captured and tortured um, lashed um, on her back to the degree where the bone could be seen apparently and she's never spoken since. So we've now got this group that includes the two resistance fighters. We've got Anthony Quayle, who, who's pretty much useless at this point now. We haven't mentioned that on the boat trip that there is this animosity between Anthony Quinn and Gregory Peck because during some previous mission, isn't this right, Anthony Quinn's family was killed and Mallory was somehow responsible or something? It's that earlier in the war, there was still a feeling that there was some form of gentlemanly conduct and there was the Germans were there with a, a truckload of casualties that they were wanting to take to a hospital. So he allowed them through to be able to go and take their casualties to the hospital. And instead of doing that, they basically killed their own men and then went and attacked the locals who were the resistance fighters. It was used as a ruse. And they basically killed off Anthony Quinn's whole family in his yeah. absence. And it's, this is something to do with Gregory Peck's character, isn't it? So he's holding him yeah. personally responsible. He decided he to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's He don't blame the Germans for killing them, but he James blames the person who made the decision to let them in, right. which was Gregory Peck's uh, character. Although they're sharing an objective of killing the, as many Germans as possible um, and winning the war, once the war is over, he's going to kill Gregory Peck. Ah. Um, basically. Okay, so as they're making their way towards, obviously they've got to get to Navarone, it becomes apparent that Anthony Quayle's leg has got far worse and has become infected with gangrene. What's the time scale here? Because it does spread this out over a few days, doesn't it? I think it's about four or five days, In isn't total. it? And they end up losing a day. Mm. Um, so it's not very long. Yeah, so it's, it's long enough for Anthony Quayle's leg to get infected. So they need to find a doctor and they end up in a town, but this town is occupied by the Germans. And, and Chief German is a friend of the show, Walter Gotel, who most of us know as uh, General Gogol from the Bond movies. And they get captured. So, Tony, I'll let you take over. Tell us about this interrogation scene. Yeah, so they're all start stood up in an office, you know, with nothing too intense at that point. Mm. And mm. I think he's an SS officer. He comes in and starts interrogation. And one of them break down. Oh, I'm a fisherman. I've got nothing to do with it. It's all <laughs> it's all a big ploy. It's all it's all lies. But we don't know this, do we? No, we don't. Because at this point, we don't know whether Stavro is doing this to save his own skin or he's doing it as a ploy to save the others, do we? It's very yeah. clever, this bit. Very, very clever. Very good bit of acting. So Anthony Quinn's now on the floor. Begging uh, and pleading, isn't he, sort of thing? Yeah, yeah pretty much. And they, they're not buying it. They just ignore it. So they go over to Anthony Quayle, um, Quayle, who's now really poorly. Yes. And obviously the Germans start to talk to him, like playing with his leg, and there's a threat made that they're going to rearrange his legs. 
Yes, yeah. I'm not going to give too much away. Okay. Um, no, Tell him and... into his ears, and his ears are going to be <laughs> yeah, where he's under. That's it. Yeah. Tie him in a knot behind his neck or something. What are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the Germans were known for their ruthlessness, to be fair. So Anthony Quinn plays it again and starts rolling around the floor, uh, like some sort of stomach complaint sort of thing, and takes the opportunity to take down two of the guards, steal their weapons, and then get the upper hand again. We get this brilliant bit that we get in a lot of these epic sort of uh, wartime movies where it's right, okay, let's disguise ourselves as Germans. We always have a scene where, like, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Allies disguise themselves as Germans to get away. I think it's written as, uh, in the law, isn't it, that if you write a war movie, your hero has to disguise himself as a German at some point to get away. And I like the bit where one of them says to uh, David Niven's character about shaving off his moustache. Uh, he says, oh, don't you think you should shave off your moustache? And he says, oh, not now I'm an officer. Because he, <laughs> you should have picked a different uniform, son. Because he just happened to be in uh, fit the one that was one of the officers and the other the others who were the uh, the corporals are having to shave uh, to make it look convincing. So, yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. Yeah, it's what uniform you, you have luck of the draw you uh, get. You know, at least it's not a stormtrooper outfit, I suppose. Well, that's it. I mean, it's oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's all based on size, isn't it? Obviously, David never being the smaller guy has to wear that uniform. But by now, as you said, Anthony Quail, Tony, is far too ill now. So they make the decision that it's probably best to leave him in the town because he will be taken as a prisoner of war, but he will be given medical attention. Yeah, so he's left there, Gregory Peck. Obviously, Captain Mallory feeds him the, the full story again because he knows that he's going to be tortured at some point or given drugs to spill the information. The so, yeah, work? given yeah. given a full story, um, give them a bit of a head start, um, which all works in their favour in the end. They buy it. What's this? It's scoplamine or something, isn't it? I think he's the drug of choice, I believe, they think the Germans are going to use on him. Yeah. Before we get to the finale, because believe it or not, this is over halfway through now, but we've still got the grand finale to this whole story to come. I think now might be a a good point to ask Stephen to get his keys and take a wander up to the Village Hall of Fame because I think we've got quite a few people to talk about. Stephen, over to you, sir. It's the Village Hall of Fame. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, what would have been such an epic and having so many people in it, particularly some people who are more background or cameos, it has caused a bit of a of an avalanche in a way because uh, certainly people making their second appearances on the Real Britannia podcast, we have 11. Oh, I think you better rattle through those. <laughs> right. Cal Durin, who was in uh, Man Who Never Was. Wolf Freeze, who was in Man Who Never Was. Walter Gotel, who was in From Which I Would Love. Me, and we'll expect a lot more from him uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Grant, now to remember. Uh, Richard Harris, who was in, uh, has only appeared once before, and that was recently in Robin and Marion. Gerard Hines, who was in Cruel Sea, which was the last film we did together. Tutor Lemkov, uh, Fetra of Blood. George Mikkel, The Rebel. 
David Niven, Matter of Life, uh, Anthony Quill, The Eagle Has Landed, and Christopher Rhodes, who was in Dunkirk. Thankfully, not as many people making subsequent appearances in from other films. Uh, we have three people making their debut in the Hall of Fame, though. Oh, th- uh, three appearances. Excellent. Okay. So we have Robert Wrighty, who was in Doctor No and Matter of Life and Death. We have Bob Wright, who was in Night to Remember and Carry On Sergeant. And Terry York, who was in Night to Remember and Theatre of Blood. Not necessarily the most recognisable of, of names, I was uh, considering say, the star quality of some of the other names in this film. But um, Just about to say, when you bear in mind that you've got people like James Robertson Justice, Brian Forbes is in here, and obviously they're going to come up in a second, aren't they? The three new inductees are pretty much unrecognisable. Yeah, Incredible. and I do believe Robert Wrighty kind of doubled up in this film because he did actually do the, the German dialogue for one of the stars that we ah, just mentioned. Ah, right, that makes sense then. Okay. Mm, okay. Uh, um, but he was also, I think, he was in it physically as well um, as, a, as an extra. But yes, you, you've mentioned uh, Brian Forbes. He's making his fourth appearance along with Percy Herbert, hey, yep. um, who was at the beginning as one of the adjutants, yes. the um, the officer that was setting them the off, as it were. But making their fifth appearance, we have Alan Cuthbertson, Peter Evans, Chick Fowles, James Robertson Justice, hey. Bob Simmons and Michael Chubshaw. I think um, Bob Simmons is the stuntman, isn't he? It was in all the early Bond films. He was in a, a lot of Bond films, yeah, doing doing stunts. Uh, Michael Trubshaw, interesting because he was uh, close friends with uh, David Niven. Yes, they've been they've actually served together in the war, and apparently there was there's some kind of in joke between them that he, even when he couldn't get. Michael Trubshaw into a film with him, mm. he would find a refer to some, you know, off-screen character or something <laughs> over. He'd try and get Trubshaw in as a, as a bit of dialogue somewhere in his films. Oh. So I'm going to start looking out for that in future. I didn't realise that before. Well, Trubshaw um, was best man at both of Niven's weddings, apparently. Oh, there you go. So, so yeah, there may be some sort of like reference to that if you're looking out for it. Possibly. So, but they were, you know, best of friends apparently. Mm. So that's good. Sixth appearance for Arthur Howell is uh, less familiar with us, but yep, he, no idea. He, um, however, seventh appearance for Maxwell Craig, um, who is more familiar when you, you you see him, and ninth appearance for John Tatham. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. If you look at his face, you go, "Oh, yeah, I've seen him in things." But um, the name doesn't automatically bring his face to your mind. So nine so, appearances is pushing so, him near the top. Yeah. Then. So we also, you know, a special mention to Jaylee Thompson, obviously. Yep. Who accumulatively, you know, four appearances really because, um, you know, Last Holiday, which we've done recently, mm-hmm. was involved with that on the writing side. He's obviously done the uh, Northwest Frontier. Uh, yes. um, which we uh, another epic that we've done and obviously Yield Tonight as well he was involved in directing so a welcome return from him because we do like his work yeah we include, um, we include well him. until he got to like Death Wish 4 and stuff like that and then <laughs> he, not so much of a fan but um, his earlier work so Wow. So yes, good to have him back. So yes, despite the popularity of some names and recognising uh, who they are, um, it is really the uh, again the bit parts that are, are making an appearance. So it's nice to see Richard Harris again and 
have him and Anthony Quayle and David Niven notch up extra ones because you would have expected them all to have been in the Hall of Fame a lot sooner like we've always um, said yeah James Robertson Justice was a was a wonderful sort of beginning he did, did the narration at the beginning as well as appearing yes. in that beginning sequence as well didn't he you mentioned Peter Grant in Night to Remember Peter Grant only had a three movie career before becoming more famous as the manager of Led Zeppelin and the Yardbirds notorious notorious music manager quite ruthless you know the stories about him are legendary uh so we are on the way to completing his cv because it was a night to remember the guns of navarone and he appeared in cleopatra as a palace guard again that's a dubious british movie that's very very american it's a proper 20th century fox production that one Mm. we're going to find it difficult to include that any further yeah but he appeared in tv shows he was in the saint and dixon and doc green he's even in the benny hill show early benny hill shows and and the size of him he was a big guy he was robert morley's double in a lot of his film all right but yeah, he became more famous as a 60s band manager. Very notorious guy. Stanley Baker. Did we mention Stanley Baker? Oh, Stanley Baker. Sorry, yes. I should have said about Stanley Baker. Sorry. For some reason, I um, skipped him on my, my list, which was absolutely unforgivable. This is his fifth appearance, I should have said. Just uh, for some reason, I didn't mention him. I don't know why he's there on my list in front of me now. No, that's so, fine. And, and Anthony um, Quayle must be three or four? Or is he only two? Anthony Quayle is only two, yeah. What was the other one? Because I kept thinking of Ice Cold in Alex, but we haven't done Ice Cold in Alex. No, uh, Eagle has landed. Eagle has landed. You did mention Very, very first. Very first episode of this podcast. Tony and I remember it well. Yes. Don't remember Anthony Quayle in it though. <laughs> <laughs> so come on, let's spoil the hell out of this and, and go towards the end now. You know, so our band of plucky heroes split up. They do to create havoc. <laughs> So why do they split up? I mean, we've got three different groups, four different all doing different things. So who's doing what? Well, one of them is involved in going to where the, the Germans are terrorising the, the villages. And so the part of it is that they're going to go and basically hamstring the Germans responding in order to, to get up to the guns. Yes. So they're attacking some of the Germans um, in the villages and undermining them there. And that's where there's some hand-to-hand fighting. And so one segment is going off there. And obviously you've got the, the continuity who were actually disabling the guns by booby trapping them basically so that that explains two prongs of it in order to be able to disable the guns and delay any response to trying to um you know confront them and then maria and stanley baker steal a boat yes so they're the you know looking after the escape route because obviously they're going to have to leap from the cliffs from where the guns are and even though david niven has repeatedly told us throughout the film that he can't swim (laughs) they're going to need to be there with the boat to actually pick them up because it seems like the the british destroyers that are steaming past to go and rescue the military personnel aren't going to stop to pick them up as they pass by so they have to have their own speedboat so one thing we haven't mentioned prior to all of this happening is that they uncover a spy amongst them yes in the shape of the woman that's claimed to have been tortured now what was it you said she was whipped to the bone whipped to the bone yeah whipped until the bone the weight of the bone showed i think was the phrase basically they want evidence of this and and the woman is totally unmarked there's no scars there's there's no evidence that she was actually tortured at all and turns out she can talk yes because she's mute all the way through this isn't she (laughs) 
you know, trust issues. Yeah. Basically, she was captured by the Germans, but I think she became spy, a double agent almost, didn't she? She was recruited as an informer. Yeah, and um, they ask her why she didn't turn over to their side once realised that there was the, she, she claimed she, there was no yeah. escape and she had no option. They're saying, well, you've had an option since you've been with us. You could have thrown your lot in with us and escaped the Germans via us. But she uh, contests that. But certainly, yeah, she's been, you know, lagging behind with a false limp to leave notes and, you know, letting them know where she is and yeah. where the rest of them are and, and leaving clues for the Germans to follow. So, yes, naughty, naughty. And, and rightly so, she got the third option. Well, yeah, Basically, doesn't like Niven wants to shoot her there and then. Yeah, uh, but he couldn't. And then, he was mm. a bit of a thing between him and Gregory Peck, and one thing led to another, and right yeah. out of the blue, the gun goes off, and we don't know who shot him. And it was the other lady, Anna. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It takes the responsibility for it, I suppose. On one sense, she can feel a responsibility for bringing her into the group, so it's for her to deal with that mistake. But all the way through this, the undercurrent of this, like you said, the third option, where killing being something that there is a moral issue of, even in war, that the question of uh, sacrificing your own personnel with regards to what they've done with, with Anthony Quill and... Um, setting him up to give false information and at one point the David Niven thinks he's going to have a bullet put in his head because you know, to put him out of his misery and stop him being a, a burden to be carried once he's been injured mm. but there are references you know there's, there is the Stanley Baker character who after being called the butcher of Barcelona from the uh, Spanish Civil War he then has had second thoughts about indiscriminate killing and, and has paused to do so and to unfortunately puts them at risk by doing so. There's that current all the way through the film about sacrificing one person or one set of people for other sets of people and the bigger picture and that ambiguity of killing an individual um, if it's necessary to do so. It's, I think, part of the reason why this film is more interesting because it's not just a straightforward war heroics it does ask these questions and and does have them put in a a few different contexts to try and work out whether all the killing that's in war is absolutely necessary and what impact that has upon the individuals that do it because it's obviously weighing heavily upon certain characters what they've already done I think this is where Um, the long running time really benefits this movie because we mm. get that chance to examine that in a bit more detail than you'd normally get in a 90 minute straightforward action war movie. Yeah, it's not a gung-ho sort of balls to the wall you know, heroics, it's got that extra dimension to it. Yeah, yeah, we're given the benefit of of a bit of time to discover more about these characters and the complications between them. So we get to my favourite bit of the whole movie. It's the whole, let's plant the explosives. Because the, the explosives have been sabotaged by Anna, we find out along the way, don't we? That all of Niven's Jelignite and all this lot has been completely ruined. So they've got to come up with a way of destroying the guns, effectively, with what they've got and the problem is that it's the triggers that are mainly the problem they can rig the rest of it up in order to cause explosions and stuff he can find a way around that because he's this chemical expert is um david niven Mm. but it's the triggers without those it means that basically people need to be on hand to set it off or be very near to it within the blast distance and that's why um two of them are there setting the charges and you know then leaping off cliffs afterwards because otherwise they can't set the charges to go off and and get to a safe distance all of them because of this 
sabotage. And they come up with this ingenious way of triggering the bombs, Tony, don't they? Do, yeah, um, using um, fuses on the lift. So when they come down, the Germans, um, they trigger it off themselves. It's like the wheels, isn't it, on the, the lift mechanism creates the circuit or completes the circuit. That's it, yeah. And this is after, you know, them reasoning cleverly to set some red herrings or dead rats, as it were, to mislead the Germans. So the Germans, you know, they yeah. say, well, they'll they'll look for some bombs, so we need to give them some to find mm. so that then they find those and think that they've foiled our plan and they'll carry on then using the guns. But, you know, they won't realise if I could put enough grease over these uh, bits, they won't realise that this is going to be the trigger. And obviously we do get a bit of trepidation with regards to when that's going to go off because it gets close to it and then it doesn't and then they come down again and it's just leaving you a bit of tension there to how many shots they're going to get off before they do actually trigger the bombs. (laughs) Can I just say, I did actually laugh out loud during this sequence because of you said about creating the tension and whether they're going to get captured before Niven can rig up the bombs in time. They've got these heavy blast doors that they've managed to seal shut, right? So (laughs) we've got this crack troop of German soldiers the other side using a sledgehammer to start with. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's not going to do a thing. We know that. So then you go, you cut back to like (laughs) Peck and Niven doing their bits and pieces, you know, Niven covered in grease and dead rats and cotton that's what's going on and then it cuts back to the German they thought okay we'll get a drill so there's two of them with drills like it's yeah. just going nowhere you know? but the jackhammer is going at <laughs> yeah. it and you're thinking if you had a jackhammer against steel your whole body would be you know vibrating you won't be in the state that well, those two are so then it, um, cuts but then it has back. to escalate from there yeah. doesn't it it cuts back we get a bit more action with Niven and Peck and blah 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 and it's like that's all right We've found an oxyacetylene cutting tool now. So it starts to, you know, <laughs> actually start to make some progress. But it just cracked me up that they thought they were going to break down those doors with just a sledgehammer. It really yeah. made me laugh. What made me laugh was when that German soldier picked up the rat with yeah. the pliers and it went off, didn't it? It was a, <laughs> like a decoy thing and just his face. It starts coughing. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. <laughs> what's for that? Yeah, that made me chuckle. It's more than it should have, really. Um, but did you know this was the scene that nearly caused the whole film to stop? What happened, mate? What happened? So in real life, David Niven became very, very ill, hospitalised, near death, ill. Really? Got an infection um, from his lip or something over, didn't he? Some yeah, so yeah. they reckon he might have caught it from when he was actually in the water doing them scenes, planting the bombs. Wow, okay, I didn't know. Yeah, they had to stop filming. I think it was like 10, 11 days they had to stop filming for, and there was doubts that he'd actually um, carry on because they needed him for a few a few more scenes. Oh, incredible. Didn't realise that at all. Yeah. Yeah, oh. yeah, so he nearly died. So we haven't mentioned that, you know, while stealing the boat, Stanley Baker gets ambushed and he's supposedly this knife expert and ends up getting stabbed himself so he's dead we've lost james darren somewhere along the way he's been shot by a german somewhere in the town because uh, he decided to basically go off mission yes and stavro manages to get into the sea and everybody sort of meets at the boat and then isn't the fact that because gregory peck saves Anthony Quinn from the sea at the last little bit, he totally sort of forgives him for killing his whole family or something. Is that the sort of it's, impression it's we get? It's unspoken that, but there seems to be a, a look or whatever because he does save him from the sea and the fact that it is Anthony Quinn is going to go, rather than go back to Crete, or he's going to um, basically 
follow him around uh, until the war's over to then as soon as the armistice is declared he's stabbing him in yeah. um he's decided to leave it and he's gonna go with the partisans and he's fallen in love you know, with maria and, as well at this point having fallen fallen for the lady yeah. uh, and go and do that instead and that realized perhaps that there's the decisions that you have to make might not always be the right one but the fallout from that shouldn't be something that you should always be basically killed for yourself so i think he's come to a more rounded view and especially with him falling for somebody else that helps him move on but it is unspoken yeah so we're just assuming and this whole final scene about you know the bombs going off and the guns being destroyed you know the guns are actually firing for a little while before they do get destroyed you know and there's this you know how many ships are going to get sunk are they actually going to succeed is the circuit going to be made special effects guys and that whole set I think was absolutely fantastic it was really good wasn't it I mean if you yeah. look back and you think 1961 the special effects might have been a bit ropey but they weren't were they time Oh, very good. Very, very good indeed. And, and it's just that whole big studio set with the massive guns, with like the hundreds of Germans, you know, and it, it's just really effective the way that it's been building up. And that whole like final bit does take about 40 minutes to get through, doesn't it? You know, so it's, it's well worth the running time. I think, like you said, that the additions of some of the character development and some of the ways in which it subtly examines the nature of war and the justification for killing, I think that actually justifies the the length of time to it because as a bog-standard epic, there wasn't maybe the, the same level of stuff to make it the length of time it was. It's one of those great, what I describe as like a men-on-a-mission movie wartime men on a mission a bit like the dirty yeah. dozen and sort of things we've seen before and we don't see that many of them nowadays i think inglorious bastards is probably the nearest we've ever got really. there's the one with historically going further back to, to brook wasn't there as well yeah that sort of era yeah, yeah. that kind of thing when they're trying to disable and as you say it's a sneaking in under enemy lines to, to sabotage something that's sneaking out again it became a genre in its own right you know it became a thing yeah. Um, as I say, we don't see that many of them now. So, Tony, obviously you like it, but how much do you like this movie, watching it so many times in the last four weeks? <laughs> what are we going to go out of? Uh, we, we normally do the five stars, me and you. Um, I'm going to give this a good solid four and a half. Yeah, I, I can four tell you enjoyed it. Very much so. It would probably been five if it was just slightly shorter. Yeah, okay. Like, yeah, not massive amounts, but I'll say 30, 40 minutes shorter, I think that'd been ideal. Does he get better what, what, every what would you have cut, Tony? I think I'd have cut a lot of the boat scene, yeah. where they're sort of bobbing around, not a lot going on, really. Mm. Um, you don't really see much from that. See. Um, <laughs> so I see. See what I did there. I see what um, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sailing through this review now. Um, and, and I think some of the sort of um, the mountain warfare bits, that was all a bit drawn out. You know, once you, they've started a gunfight and they're running around after one another, you sort of know what's going on, really. Shall I tell you what I'd have cut? What's that? Richard Harris. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, does it get bloody better? Richard Harris. Bloody, bloody Richard Harris. Does it get better on every view in Tony? Because as I say, you've watched it a fair few times. Um, I noticed something different each time. Yeah. I've missed the first time round. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's consistently good for me. Excellent. 
Stephen, in your rating system, it's an epic. It needs to be seen on the big screen if possible, doesn't it, this one? I would say if you do get the opportunity to see it on the big screen, that's where you would get the most out of it. Certainly from, although I've read some stuff technically about it, that the original premiere of it, they used the full technical or all, all jazz and everything, but then when it was actually distributed, it was done from a, a lesser print that was done in a, a lower quality, so it didn't quite... Uh, come across as well but no I think this is a fairly iconic film certainly the name people uh, you know if you're over a certain age uh, you'll be familiar with the name even if you're not familiar with the the film or the Scar song. So mentioning the Scar song, I mean, you know, that that was the impact it had at the time, that it was so popular that, you know, it influenced people to be bring it into the cultural zeitgeist as far as other works. And it did, you know, it didn't win awards, didn't it, and things. And I think it is one of the epic war films that is iconic enough to warrant people making an effort to see. Some people who are interested in war films won't be, you know, shouldn't bother, obviously, but anybody else, um, make sure you see it at least once because it is iconic. And I think for people like us, it does give us a, a reference point as well to potentially make jokes about it in the future with various things making reference to it. So, yeah, look it up and you should be able to find it and it should be on some bank holiday one day next year. This is the thing. It was, you said, like, people of a certain age will be familiar with this because it was every Christmas along with Where Eagles Dare or The Great Escape, because they would have the time over the Christmas period to put on a two-hour 40 movie. And, and that's where I first saw it, you know, late 70s, as, as a holiday movie. For me personally, it's a four-star. It, it gets better for me with every viewing. It's one I haven't watched that many times compared to some of the other epics that we we tend to talk about. And I just wanted to ask, before we sort of wrap things up here, has anybody seen the sequel? I haven't, but I'm aware it kind of starts from where this finishes off. Yeah. Um, apparently where the, you know, it actually includes um, some footage of, of right at the beginning, the does, first scene of, yeah. the, of the guns exploding, and it's, I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? When it got its first TV premiere, which would have been early 80s, and the characters are all replaced. The actors are replaced. Uh, Robert Shaw takes the Gregory Peck role. We've got Harrison Ford, and I think it's one of the Foxes. James Fox, I think, plays the Niven role. It's the only sequel that Alistair MacLean ever wrote, uh, and the film is completely different, pretty much, from, from the novel anyway. But again, it's another one of those Men on a Mission movies, you know, and it's got some... It's a real sort of Hollywood blockbuster from 1978. That, that sort of era when those sort of movies sort of had a bit of a research things like remember the wild geese yeah and uh the sea wolves uh, david niven and gregory peck in it as well funny enough those sort of movies in the late 70s early 80s uh, it's, it's worth looking as uh it's, it's not necessary but it might be worth having a little look at. i, I wonder why they didn't get the same actors back i mean it's not like there was any problem with them being too old in the first place um Oh, I don't because, know. Because, I mean, they were, they were all, they're all like old 10, 10, 10 to 20 years older than the characters <laughs> in, in the film originally. So that, that suspension of disbelief was already there. So why not get them back? Yeah, by the time that came out, they've all been in their 60s. <laughs> well, well, I think that's why something like The Sea Walls was made, to give these older actors a chance to do that sort of movie again, which is a great, we've got to do that at some point. That's a great film, The Sea Wall. Okay. That's the Guns of Navarro, 1961. We're recording this mid to late November. 
So this is not going to go out till early in the new year. We're probably not going to meet till early in the new year, the three of us guys, apart from the Christmas episode, which we're going to record next week. So by my calculations, it's Stephen's selection. Let's take a break. We'll be back after this. Okay, Guns and Avro, 1961. Back in the new year, Stephen, it's up to you, my friend. What are we going to be watching, the three of us? Well, obviously that that we've just done there, it, despite a little bit of stumbling to try and do the synopsis at the start, we've, um, I would say that podcast went well. And, um, <laughs> I don't know about the rest of the year, but I, I, I feel it went well. And uh, maybe that Oh that no, I know where you're going. In... <laughs> <laughs> it's a war film. <laughs> it's just another war film. Yes, stay on the theme. So uh, I know Scott's just guessed what it is. Um, I, so what say, is it, Scott? Can I just say Thora Heard kicks Nazi ass? Yes. Oh, wow. So um, <laughs> so even even Tony knows what it is now. And and for the uh, the two listeners, it's went the day well from 1942. Oh, Tony, have you actually seen it? Do you know what we're talking about? I know I know you were just impressed at me saying Thora Heard kicking ass, but it's. I'm thinking I see it. It's like a early forties yeah. film. And I tell you what, it's very similar to is is where Eagles Dare. It's where Germans disguise themselves to infiltrate the village. Yeah. And the villagers basically take over. It's, oh, yeah. It is one of the most famous, well-respected British war movies of all time. I'm right in saying, Stephen. I know this. It certainly uh, gets a lot of acclaim. Um, and deservedly so we'll be all that ahead of ahead of time but um, yeah iconic for Thor Heard who uh, you know many people just you know imagine as the old shopkeeper woman out of Last of the Summer Wine or whatever whereas in this uh, in her younger days yes kicking ass and um, it's although it isn't you know it's not an ealing comedy which it could well have been I think but um, in reality, it's a, you know it's more serious than that. It's a thriller and uh, really a war film. But um, yeah, certainly well respected and, and deservedly so. And um, so yes, I thought it might be um, appropriate for us to touch on it. Excellent. Yeah, the Ealing movie designed to boost the morale of the nation. You know, because the threat of invasion was very prominent and almost likely. So it was just a great vehicle for boosting the public and. and getting them back on but it's brilliant great great choice mate absolutely looking forward to that okay we're going to meet again next week for our christmas episode which by the time this episode goes out you would have all listened to hopefully so happy new year happy new year and all that (laughs) happy easter (laughs) that's it from me that's it from steve and that's it from tony thank you guys see you soon goodbye positive shot Good luck. Thank you.
the British end up, sir. I'm sick of pains. <laughs>